Reverend Harry Bridge. And I'm Dr. Scott Mitchell, and this is the Dharma Realm Podcast. And we're coming to you from the Kodo of the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California. Dharma Realm podcast for March 4th, 2011, and today we start off talking about the Seven Masters, uh, but really we're talking about history. So this semester, I'm teaching a course for the first time on the Seven Masters of Jodo Shinshu, and so it's requiring me to do a lot of work and research and uh, boning up on stuff that I've studied before, uh, but not necessarily well enough to teach off the top of my head. You know your students are listening to this, right? <laughs> <laughs> It'll have already come out after this course started. So I mean, <laughs> the course will have started before this comes out, so they won't know until we're into it. Um, and don't get your hopes up. <laughs> This isn't a Seven Masters episode, although it might seem like it. Uh, but uh, we, we promise someday to get someday back to, the get back to the Seven Masters. <laughs> um, but part of so, in a way, it's related. Part of uh, getting ready is looking into Nagarjuna and Vasubandhu, and so and Nagarjuna. I'm not an expert, but I feel like I've got a pretty good handle on Nagarjuna, um, and uh, have some good sources and uh, stuff for the class to read. But Vasubandhu is another story. Trying to um, dig into Vasubandhu is difficult. Uh, Yeah, there's really not that much on Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) There's stuff in print, too, but I don't know. Where do you go? Are you looking only at Vasubandhu, or are you looking at the text that he wrote? So we've got four-volume translation in English from the French, from the Sanskrit of the Abhidharma Kosha. Right. We've got Ackerman has this, is it Vasubandhu, the Buddhist doctor or something? Yeah. Um, Buddhist psychological doctor. Historical criticism and Tibetan and the, mm-hmm. perspectives and, yeah, and, there's a lot. Yeah. And then you don't, you don't even have to necessarily just do Vasubandhu, you could also do Yogachara. Uh, and so that was another... Um, tack that I was taking was um, looking kind of at um, some of the Yogacara doctrines. So Yogacara is uh, one of the main, generally viewed as one of the main Mahayana philosophical schools. Uh, Rather important one. Yep. Um, Often referred to as mind only or consciousness only. And you had a little rant about that. It's not important. <laughs> it's, no, it is, because Yogacara doesn't mean mind right. only. The, the Sanskrit word Yogacara does not literally translate to mind only. Um, I, I'm blanking now for, you know, just since you put me on the spot of, of remembering what Yogacara translates. But <laughs> Well, yoga, and so it's interesting because, you know, yoga we usually think of as like gymnastics or whatever. <laughs> not gym, I'm sorry. This reminds me of Roger Corliss talking about... Um, uh, what was he? Taoism as like calisthenics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I did the same thing. I feel bad. Um, but not yoga like we think of in kind of modern day of, you know. Right. Uh, well, yeah, but yoga in the same. Hindu yoga, but more yoga as practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So 
Yogacara is more like this p- practitioner kind of thing, and so it seems to imply that, wow, okay, great. Right. But, but it, the, the reason it's called consciousness only is because the Yogacara deals a lot with uh, Buddhist psychology, for lack of a better word, yep. i.e. Yep. Um, understanding the mind and understanding how the how consciousness works and right. the implications of that on um, external reality. Right. So um, conscious, uh, consciousness, metaphysics. Yeah. Um, and Vijnanavada would be, the, I think, the um, Sanskrit word for consciousness only, right. or the Vijnanavadins. Um, in Japanese, and well, Chinese, the Japanese pronunciation of the Chinese term is yuishiki, and shiki is consciousness, yui is tada, only, so it's basically only consciousness or mind only. Um, so there is, there, you know, it, it does come out of the tradition. Right. So I think, so I've been reading this book by um, this fairly well-known Buddhist studies scholar and philosopher Herbert Gunter, uh, who it, apparently he passed away a few years ago. And uh, I was look, we were looking him up on Wikipedia, and it says that his <laughs> works are generally acknowledged as being difficult to read. <laughs> and I'll go along with that. Uh, but if you can get past the difficulty, I think they're rewarding. He's a very intelligent guy. Uh, he tends to use Western philosophical terms to translate certain things from Buddhist philosophical terms and he doesn't give you necessarily the Sanskrit term he'll sometimes he'll give you the Tibetan term which unfortunately I'm very not aware not I don't understand I haven't yeah, I haven't yeah, studied yeah. Tibetan stuff that much um, and that and that's a fundamental challenge of, of, of trying to understand a whole different philosophical culture I think that you know we often I don't know I feel like we often sort of take Buddhism for granted almost that Buddhism mm-hmm. is sort of easy to get you know it's very simple it's this religion of peace mm-hmm. um, you know or whatever sort of or four noble truths right so you know, path that's ha- it yeah we have some basic sort of grounding we're like okay I got it but we we forget that you know Buddhism is a, a rich and Buddhisms are a rich and complex set of philosophical uh, ideas and perspectives and I um uh, worldviews and whatnot that are older than uh, most Western philosophy, and so how do we translate these terms that are not only conceptually difficult on themselves, but are grounded in a larger cultural context with all of the connotations? And so then, to to do that and just sort of do the one to one quick thing, you know, dukkha is the famous the sort of idea that stands out, right? We always say dukkha is suffering. It's easy, done, but that's doesn't really get to the heart of what dukkha is really all about and you have to have these long conversations about what dukkha means and which we have done in the past which we have done in the past go dig into the archives (laughs) we've got one on on suffering Um, which is which speaks to the difficulty of of translating a a bigger not just the one-to-one translation but translating whole whole systems of thought actually Um, Gunter's pretty good on the dukkha issue he calls it frustration hmm Life is frustration. I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he's interesting because sometimes he'll just surprise you. He'll say something really clearly and <laughs> interesting insights. I, I think once he called samsara, in a different book that I was reading, he was calling samsara is addiction. Huh. Addiction to material, addiction to... So that's kind of an interesting take on attachment. Right. Right. right? So instead of uh, suffering and attachment, frustration and addiction... Hmm. Not bad, Mr. Gunter. I'm going to have to read me some Gunter. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't like it when he uses terms like noetic. I don't know what it is in Western philosophy, and I don't know what term <laughs> he's using in Eastern philosophy, and so it's just kind of like, what? Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Like the, the, the sort of connotations, not only of, of Eastern philosophy, but the connotations of Western philosophy. What does noetic right. mean in a Western philosophical context? Yeah. And are you bringing all that baggage with it when you bring it to a Buddhist context? Yeah. 
So you got to keep this stuff in mind if you read Gunter. Um, but if you stick with it, he has some uh, interesting stuff to say. Uh, he calls the Yogachar the mentalists. I think that's the term he uses. Isn't um, there a TV show called The Mentalist? Maybe. <laughs> There's another. The Mentalist with and or as. Um, that's a reference to our last podcast. Um, one of the things that struck me in reading this book, it's called Buddhist Philosophy. It's a little penguin heart, uh, paperback that I picked up at a used bookstore long time ago. This is like, it's probably from over 15 years ago. Wow, what a neat looking book. Four ninety five. try to read it. What? And just put it away. <laughs> and then the past few years, I've pulled it back down and tried to dig back into it. And it's been somewhat rewarding, especially looking into Yogacara. So the thing that struck me is he's talking about Buddhist philosophy. And he's giving, talking about the four main schools. And so you think, okay, this is interesting. It's already, and I can't tell you what the first one is, uh, but it's basically Sarvastivadin, uh, this idea uh, that all things exist in the past, present, and future. And then he goes on to the next one, the Sautrantikas, uh, which are viewed as a quote-unquote Hinayana school, uh, but kind of pre-Mahayana, like they're a predecessor to a lot of the proto-Mahayana, the um, uh, full-blown Mahayana ideas. You can find some germs of that in there. Uh, and then he gets to the third one, the mentalists. And so, okay, this is interesting. And he's looking, it makes sense in a way, because uh, Takakusu has a great book, The Fundamentals of Buddhist Philosophy, I think it's called. And um, it's a great book. It, it sums up the, the main schools that existed in Japan. And a lot of those go back to India, so you have to be careful and not read it necessarily as Indian, a history of Indian philosophy. Uh, but... He's got these great fold-out sections. So for the Sarvastivadins, and um, I think it's the Kusha school mm-hmm. in Japan, from Abhidharma, Abhidharma Kosha, mm-hmm. uh, which is this uh, compendium of quote-unquote Hinayana Buddhism. I can't call it Theravada because it's not a Theravada text, uh, but it's this pre-Mahayana um, kind of stuff of a certain school in India, or Northwest India, um, that doesn't exist anymore, right? But all things exist, and so they list out all things. This is dharmas with a cap, uh, with a lowercase d. Right, right, right. This is the constituent elements of reality, the atoms, the building blocks of all experience. And so he's got this fold out <laughs> that comes them? up like legal size, yeah, of this chart. Yeah, yeah. The interesting thing is, Yogacara has that chart too, but it's slightly different, right? So that Yogacara also looks at these building blocks, these fundamental building blocks. So I think that's why Gunther puts the, the Yogacara in as this third stage. Uh-huh. Well, there's another reason, but we'll get to that. Fourth stage is Madhyamaka. This is Nagarjuna. No. What do you mean all things exist? All things are empty of inherent existence. The exact opposite. They're all empty. Right. right? Shunyata. Shunyata. Right. Emptiness. Ku. Uh, and so if you've studied Buddhist history this from, should kind from, of from a certain point of view from a certain point of view but you know the kind of Buddhist studies kind of view implying uh, Western right and the education that I got and I think that Scott got too uh, you're, this should kind of throw you for a loop uh, because Nagarjuna is viewed as kind of the founder of uh, Majyamaka. The Majyamaka, yeah. which is like what? First, second century. Century, second century common CE, era, yeah. common era. Um, and then 
Yogacara's Asanga and Vasubandhu. Which is like 4th, 5th century, I think. Yeah, several centuries later. And so normally I think we think of this historical progression of Madhyamaka and then Yogacara. Right. And, and because it would be, they would be reacting to each other, you know, if mm-hmm. you have the everything exists school and then Nagarjuna comes along and says, no, everything's empty. So that's sort of an easy, you know, a critique of the previous school. And then Yogacara comes along and has a building upon of Yogacara. Mm-hmm. I mean, of Manyalaka. Yeah. Now, the relationship between Yogacara and Madhyamaka is very difficult and complex and not very well understood. Uh, often they're viewed as being... Uh, uh, at odds, mm-hmm. right? Um, but there are other scholars that view them as more complementary than 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 that, right? Uh, and and, and we sh- I think it should be at this point be careful too to not impose our own understandings of school, um, quote unquote, on these philosophical schools of uh, you know early Buddhist uh, Indian schools. Mm-hmm. Um, in, I think in a modern Western context, we think of school, we think of an, in, of an independent institution right. that is separate from or is distinct from some other school um, or a lineage that is, that is separate and distinct from another school. And that um, is, is pretty clear that's not what's happening. Mm-hmm. At this, mm-hmm. this early stage of, of Buddhist philosophical development, that these, these distinct schools weren't necessarily distinct. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot more fluidity Mm-hmm. going on um, and you I think many scholars now would say that if we were to you know travel back in time what we would find is these large monastic complexes where many different people would come together and they would each sort of represent different ideas within a continuum of Buddhist philosophical ideas that we can look back at from this point in view of the present and say aha these people were you know, Majamaka and these people were Yogacara, but you know, they themselves would have saw them them their activity in a much different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we can look at this from the Mahayana versus uh, some of the other mainstream schools. I'll mm-hmm. say instead of using the term Hinayana, which is pro, um, uh, pejorative, uh, possibly derogatory, uh, if we look at them as mainstream, like Sarvastivada, for example, mm-hmm. right? And that actually. Uh, they were in the same, again, they were in the same monasteries, uh, according to Xuanzang and some of the Chinese that went to India, right? right? And um, so, yeah, that's a huge issue, actually. It's a very important point. Yeah, and, 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 and you know, a lot of this, too, is speculative. And I mean, some of it is not speculative, but it's also right. a lot of this stuff is lost to, to, to history and time. Right. But right. anyway. But we can take inspiration from that, too, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. And it'd be nice if our modern Buddhist schools could be more... Uh, conciliatory to each other, maybe, right? And more, um, <laughs> right. you know, accepting of other viewpoints and of other schools and that we could have more, uh, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Dialogue. Dialogue, companionship. Yeah. You know, these are all kind of circling around what I want to say, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, that's an interesting question, but... Yeah. I think I finally figured out why Gunter puts it in this order. Oh, of the, the with the yoga chart first, first and, and then, then Majamaka. because he's coming from a very specific institutional Tibetan institutional viewpoint, and he's using two classic Tibetan texts of the names of which I can't give you right now, uh, but he's coming and from a certain school which I'm not even going to try to bother naming, uh, but I think that probably this school views the progression in this way. Right. and views Majamaka as the peak, and so even though from our point of view. Historically, linearly, Madhyamaka came first. This is 
putting Madhyamaka above Yogacara and saying that Yogacara doesn't quite get it. He almost goes so far as to call it proto-Mahayanic. Yogacara? He, yeah. Huh. He doesn't even really um, accept Yogacara as a true Mahayana school. <laughs> Interesting stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really fascinating. And it's fun, fun stuff to read once right, you get right. through the beyond, below the level of just language that kind of throws you off. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Um, yeah. And how, how like disturbing it was to me. <laughs> I found it really, what's, <laughs> what's going on? Why? And I had to go back to the introduction. Why is, Madhyam, why is Yogacara before Madhyamaka? Yeah. What's, it, it just really threw me for a loop for a while. Right. Because um, you're all bound up in linear time, man. Yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem I've been having. <laughs> your, your addiction to linear time? Yeah. <laughs> to use some yep. Guntra language? And my frustration when someone goes out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, in, 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 in all seriousness, um, that, that, that's interesting to me because it reminds me of you know, one of the things that I do in my own, in my own scholarship is look at history and, and, and theory and, 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 you know, sort of studying religion as a thing. Um, and I'm very aware of how the way that we study religion is uh, the result of centuries of Western philosophical understandings of the world. And there's this very, very clear understanding in, in Western modes of discourse of, of a sort of progressive view of history. Mm-hmm that we should look at history as being in this sort of progressive, uh, you know, ever moving forward kind of idea um, that I think we should sort of pause and be critical of, you know, if we can think back on our previous couple episodes of, of being critical of our own perspectives and, and not assuming that our perspectives are necessarily true and be critical of where they come from. Um, you know, it, it's from a post-colonial sort of point of view, it's very easy to see how Western uh, European philosophy and thought really just sort of assumes that there is this uh, developmental sort of aspect of human history. Um, and in the colonial period, this was for explicit, you know, colonialist political ends of saying, you know, the human species is getting ever more evolutionarily advanced and the European culture, of course, is the best, right? <laughs> and so from this point of view, you can say, okay, non-Europeans are therefore not as developed as we are. And you can still see some of this in our language, right? We t- talk about developing countries, for example. The assumption is they're developing to be more like us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, from that point of view, you can say, okay, it, it makes logical sense that Yogacara would be a more developed form of Buddhist philosophy than Madhyamaka because it came after it in history. In a you know, progressive view of history, the, the further you go forward in time, the more developed and more uh, advanced you become. Which, you know, from a certain point of view, makes total sense. And, uh, you know, in, uh, in a lot of areas, yes, where we are right now in history is definitely more advanced. We have, we have iPods, for God's sakes. <laughs> we have the iPhone. iPad. <laughs> That's way more advanced than, you know, uh, the Bronze Age. Right. <laughs> to or use an telephone. extreme. Yeah, or a telephone. <laughs> it's so 20th century. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I don't think that we can necessarily take this sort of progressive view of technological development and apply it to human culture. Mm. I think there are some problems with that. Uh, philosophical issues, if you will, if we necessarily assume that all philosophy that's come in later history is a development and better mm-hmm. than than previous eras. There's yeah. something about Hegel in here too. Yeah. We wanted to One do some name dropping. Really, um, <laughs> Hegel is, is um, a big part of this, I think, in the Western tradition. Uh, and I was fortunate 
when I was an undergrad um, to take, there was a class on Japanese history and mm-hmm. it was a Japanese American teacher. I can't remember his name right now. Uh, but so I took this Japanese class, which is, it wasn't, a lot of us were disappointed, I think, because he started Meiji. He started like 1868 and we wanted like ancient history or something. I don't well, know. People were kind of bummed out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I thought he was kind of an interesting guy. He was an interesting teacher. And so I took another of his classes and it was kind of, I can't remember the title, but it was like post-colonial kind of stuff. And we read Hegel and we read this one book where he lays out like the progress of civilization, the advancement of civilization. And um, Asia's in there in a lower state, Mm -hmm. right? Asia's lower on the development scale than Europe of Hegel's now. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that was interesting to be exposed to that. And then later on when I got into kind of postmodern kind of um, stuff, Hegel comes up again. And I think it's this idea of the teleology, uh, which is this kind of arc, this like ever forward moving arc um, of progress. Mm -hmm. I'm just restating what you said, basically, but in a different way. Um, And so this is where you get the idea of the thesis, the antithesis or antithesis, right? So you have this thesis, this idea, and then it gets challenged. And then through that, you get synthesis. You get something better that comes through that process. Uh, And... That's Hegel's view of history with, of course, himself and Europe and maybe Germany at the forefront. Um, but we don't realize that this is becomes an assumption yeah, yeah. for us, right? And that, um, like, basically what you said, uh, that we view things as always progressing, always moving forwards. Right. Uh, and that view can be criticized or critiqued. I think it should be critiqued. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think on the face of it, it can be easily critiqued if you if you assume that things are always getting better. That immediately, in my mind, raises a host of questions. Um, taken to its logical extreme, that would mean that um, all previous eras of Buddhist philosophy are necessarily not as good as the current one, mm. right? And you could do that at any particular point in time in history. You could say, oh, well, Vasubandhu was a much better philosopher than Nagarjuna because he knew more than Nagarjuna did. He was more developed, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, flash forward a few thousand years or a couple thousand years and you get, you know, Shinran was clearly the pinnacle of, of Pure Land thought because he was more contemporary, more modern than, than these other people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, why stop there? Shinran was 750 years ago, so Renyo must be even better than Shinran. Um, well, okay, it's still, what, 500 years ago? So what are you saying now? That we're mm-hmm. somehow better? That we know more than previous eras of humanity? In some ways, yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, does that mean that we discount previous versions of philosophy? Mm-hmm. Plus, I think that you can easily use this kind of view of history in a polemical sort of way that says, well, our lineage got it right. Mm-hmm. Our lineage of development got it right, whereas this other lineage of development got it wrong. And they are clearly off track, right? You can easily say, well, our seven masters were clearly being more and more developed, and, and they reached their pinnacle in Shinran, yay for us, whereas this other Buddhist lineage, they were all wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they misunderstood, mm-hmm. and they didn't develop, and they stayed behind, and they did not advance, you know. Um, you know, and this is all just within the, the sort of Buddhist discourse of polemics and apologetics. I'm not even talking about, you know, East versus West, European colonialism, political nightmares, <laughs> which is a whole other, you know, sphere of knowledge. Um, so I think I, there, uh, there are some reasons to, to really question this assumption that 
history is necessarily progressive. Um, you know, plus just to throw one more monkey wrench in there. Um, it's, it's kind of un-Buddhist if you think about it. The Buddha himself said that the Dharma is going to decline, which to me is the antithesis of progress. But that's, you know, that's another, that's another story. <laughs> Teleology of decline. <laughs> right. <laughs> the world's going to hell, in other words. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can use this to um, look at this critique, to look at, um, as you implied, the, the um, Jodo Shinshu view, mm-hmm. uh, the v- Jodo Shinshu version, and built within Shinran's Kyogyo Shinsho, or even within Shoshinge, there is a linear historical progression of the seven masters. Oh, wow, we're talking about them again in the episode. Um, it's always laid out in this three-country version, India, China, Japan, and it goes Nagarjuna, Vasubandhu for India, Tanluan, Daocho, Shandao for China, Genshin, Honen for Japan, culminating in Shinran. Right. Right. And so, and you know, Shinran does um, quote Korean masters in the, the, the main body of the text. But the, from the seven masters he chose, it's called this three country model uh, India, China, Japan. So we have to be careful with that. Um, it seems logical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If Japan is your base that you're working <laughs> from, right? Um, but again, I think that this is where the critical, as you mentioned, the critical um, yeah. viewpoint is is good to to keep in mind. Right, and I think right, mostly to, just to, to to keep it in mind and to to be careful how we're using it. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily that we're not progressing as a species or that we're degenerating at this particular point in time. Um, but just to be aware of this ideology that we're necessarily progressing and that we in any particular location are better than some other people, you know, just be aware of that's a, a, a possibility of this kind of assumption. And what are the implications there? Mm-hmm. You know, if we take it to a, uh, from a different point of view, if we say that Buddhism is always developing and becoming better and better and better wherever it goes, which is something that Buddhists do a lot, right? Mm-hmm. That, Buddhism is, is progressing throughout Asia, right? It leaves India and goes into China, becomes better in China, becomes better in Korea, better in Japan. Well, now Buddhism's come to the United States. Is it better here than it was in Japan? And, you know, there are people out there who really, some who, who say that and some who imply that, that, you know, Buddhism in the West is more advanced or more modern or more in touch with, you know, contemporary people than you know, Asian or traditional Buddhism. Um, so there are some implications there, you know, that we should just be attentive to. Not that, and that isn't to discount any one particular Buddhist thinker or idea or community. It's just to sort of be aware of how that language might have implications. If I say, oh, well, my Buddhism is, is progressive and modern, then I'm implying then that there are some other Buddhists who aren't. <laughs> Um, And they might look at me and say, "Um, you're kind of (laughs) crazy. We're just as progressive and modern as you are. So what is, what are the, how do, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with that sort of uh, those, those ideas Mm -hmm. is all I'm saying, man. (laughs) (laughs) If I can jump back to the Shinran. Yeah. 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 One of the interesting things there. um, Another thing that happens is Shinran kind of gets frozen as the pinnacle. I think within the tradition. Right, so you have this natural progression of the three countries model leading up to Shinran, and then Shinran is the pinnacle. And so there, time kind of stops in a way. Yeah. Right, so that Renyo is not viewed as better than Shinran. Although, in a way, maybe so. He, he 
actually was able to, yeah, he's the restorer, and he's able to uh, distill the message in a way that's more easily understood, and he's the one that makes uh, Jodo Shinshu institutionally powerful and viable in Japan, in Japanese history, right? And so, in a sense, he is viewed in a way as being able to do something that Shinran couldn't. If you look at Shinran's letters yeah, versus yeah, yeah. Renyo's letters, it's like Shinran's letters, you can feel he's trying to communicate to his followers and trying to communicate to people. But he uses a lot of technical terms, and they're really kind of difficult. Yeah, Renyo, and there's like the Tani Show, right, which is a distillation of Shinran's thought, which is mm-hmm. that book that no one's supposed to read because it's so difficult. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? It's the razor edge or something. Right, 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 right. The razor text, right? Because <laughs> in the right hands, it's useful as a tool, but in the wrong hands, it can be dangerous, yeah. right? Renyo had, Renyo's the one who writes about how you have to be careful with right. uh, the, the um, Tani Show. Yeah. And uh, he's able to, his letters are more easily understood. Whether he is quote-unquote accurately transmitting what Shinran said is questioned by some people. Uh, some people say, yeah, Renyo got it. He's um, absolutely um, has distilled the message, Shinran's message, totally understood it and perfectly transmitted it in an easier, more easily understood form. But there are others that will question that. Yeah. Uh, and then that brings up the question, well, if we're frozen at Shinran... That has implications. Yeah, and could, who, who has it right? Yeah. Who yeah, accurately I, understands Shinran? And you actually find that there are different understandings of Shinran, even within a single institution like Nishi Honganji. Uh, I mean, you can say Higashi has one understanding, and Nishi has a different one. But even within those schools, I think you'll find yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. multiple interpretations. You'll find other groups that have left, um, you know, aren't, don't consider themselves, they consider themselves right and have split off. Right. Uh, I think America, things are, you know, developing in a different way, so. Yeah, I think, I think we're frozen with it with, at Renyo. Mm. I think time stops there. Okay. I'm going to make that argument right now, off the top of my head. So I, I'm prepared to be wrong. Okay. <laughs> but it's an interesting, interesting sort of thought experiment that time does sort of stop in this progressive view of history that all of a sudden we've reached the pinnacle of our thought and we're not going any further. Um, I think one obvious implication there is that we then get stagnant, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? If if we take that view to the extreme, then well, we've we've done everything we can do. You know, we can't improve upon Shinran Arenyo, so let's just you know settle in for the long haul, um, and th- that sort of leeches any vibrancy or creative energy out of the institution, which has a certain implication. This is a thought experiment, folks. Keep that in mind. <laughs> Um, but I, I think you could probably make the argument that, that time does sort of stop with Renyo because that's when the institution sort of, you know, becomes an institution, right? Um, now, this, I think, would be more metaphorical and not literal. I don't personally think that time has stopped. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's really, 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 really easy to show the dynamic, creative developments that have happened in Shin Buddhism over the last five centuries, um, even today, especially today. Um, so it would be wrong to think that uh, no development has happened. Um, well, when I, and the example that I would think of is Sango Wakudan, which is something that happened in Tokugawa period, um, I think around 1800, uh-huh. and there is a doctrinal dispute. Um, it, it escalates into violence so much that the shogun has to step in and make some pronouncements, and the, the hammer comes down again, and things are frozen again. So... Um, we can see these kind of institutional movements of, of um, inst- uh, 
doctrinal innovation, practice innovation maybe, and then where it goes maybe a little too far and people decide they need to make decisions and this is not correct. And so that has happened. I think that has happened actually several times. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's one example. And the nice thing is, unfortunately, that um, Sango Wakuran, that period and Edo period uh, from around 1800, hasn't been so well documented. But stuff is gradually coming out in English. Uh, I think that the Numato lecture, this or Ryukoku lecture, uh, one of those two here at um, IBS this semester is going to look at that period. So that stuff is gradually coming out more and more and more to give us a more nuanced view uh, of the of you know some of the, these instances uh, in Shinshu history. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I think that the the Rukoku lecture is going to happen at the same time this episode is released. Oh wow! So, so this we'll have is to have some preview stuff to get people to go to. This is this is very yeah. timely. This conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. we're having, um, ser- ser- serendipitously, yep. not planned on our part. Um, but but I think that the this is an interesting sort of obvious critique of the progressive view of history that um, to say that things are always developing and always getting better and always progressing is to ignore the way that history does what you just said. It sort of expands and contracts that that human culture actually is much more vibrant and much more complex than that. That there are these periods where yes, we we head in one direction and then the society says, no, let's 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 not do that and sort of level off or go backwards or, you know, rein in on all of this progress and then, you know, these explosions of creativity. Um, you know, it's not a straight line. Yeah. Um, you know, hu- real life and human behavior is much more unpredictable than that. And that's where being aware of history can be really good because it reminds us of this and it helps shake us out maybe of our um, assumptions. And I was watching a little earlier, we were talking about um, this idea of schools and the you know, solidity of schools and, you know, the, the kind of antagonism between them. And it hasn't always been like that. And I was watching, too, about this show about Islam in the early years of Islam mm. and how um, when Islam expanded at the, in the early years, you know, today, I think a lot, if you asked a lot of people, they would say, oh, yes, Islam is uh, uh, very kind of um, aggressive and unaccepting of other viewpoints. And yes, there are some forms of Islam like that. Yeah, yeah. But in the early years, they were actually very, very uh, tolerant. And when they took over a city, they allowed the Christians or the other people of other religions to keep doing their thing. Um, and, you know, we're, we're actually um, open to that. So the, the looking, being aware of the history of it shows that um, what we, the way we think it is right. isn't necessarily so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think most, most Americans probably think of Islam as a monolithic thing, mm-hmm. you know. Right, right, right. Uh, well, you know, I think most, I think a lot of people think of most religions in, that, in those terms, right. religions that they're unfamiliar with, right? I know a lot of people who think of the Buddhism as being a monolithic thing, um, and we know that and there's... And our leader is the Dalai Lama. Yes. But what we know, the reality is that there's a lot more internal diversity within these traditions that um, we, don't, we don't want to, we don't see, we don't acknowledge and, and and being aware of the history of these of these traditions is very very helpful in that way like you said 